hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Inbound Boston. Curation matters, and if you live in the Boston area, you're in luck. You can get a curated newsletter of events and news delivered to your inbox thanks to Inbound Boston. Inbound Boston is your newsletter guide to Beantown, curated to help you get closer to your city. Subscribe for free at InboundBoss, that's InboundBoss.com. And by Bumblejacks. So I live in a teeny house in Somerville, Massachusetts, which I love, but must also concede that it comes with some limitations, wall space being one of them. Which is why, when I hang up art, I make sure to do it right. Bumblejacks creates frameless, floating wall art with your digital photos, with unique materials like acrylic, bamboo, raw aluminum, and birch. You won't have to worry anymore about expensive, customized framing, and they even have millions of images of their own to fit the mood and color scheme of any room. And if you're also short on wall space, they also create acrylic photo blocks that make stunning stand-up displays. For listeners of The Lonely Palette, they've got a special offer. Use the promo code LONELY and get 25% off your Bumblejacks order, but hurry! The offer ends on December 15th. Go to bumblejacks.com and use the promo code LONELY to transform your home, be it teeny or large, with beautiful wall art. That's B-U-M-B-L-E-J-A-X dot com. Promo code LONELY. Mm, a group of naked people running around at a it's a green but it's also blue so I'm not sure if they are going around on the grass or in the sky or in the air I don't know yeah I would say it's like people dancing how many three four five five naked people dancing ring around the rosy maybe it looks like they're on a new beach. <laughs> Cause it's, yeah, because they're yeah, like, it's water around them, yeah. Yeah, dancing girls. But it's, I think it's more important how uh, the colors and the form are working together. The one on the end, like her back is arched, her arms are going up like a ballerina, like their bodies are just going in different directions. So it gives you a sense that they're moving. Uh, yeah, you can see yeah, one line, it's not really uh, closing, as you say it, yeah, but it's, it's still moving. So the bodies are in a, in a sea moving, like up and down. Yeah, that's what I see. And describe what your body is doing as you're explaining <laughs> How do I explain it like this? Yeah, like going like, rough, yeah. Like that. <laughs> yeah, that's what I feel. They, they look like they're not in balance either, so they, they, they look like they could tip over any moment. They're, they are in a position that cannot... Uh, be sustained. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And this feels wobbly. It feels like you're throwing a pot and you dented it and it's going all wonky. And it's about to spin off the wheel. Yeah. It looks like she's about to fall. <laughs> she's... The only one in the painting that's driving. She's just—I can't make it. I can't complete the circle, and it's, I'm never going to get there. She's not going to make it. So there's just that incompleteness or yeah. anxiety, I guess. It definitely has a kind of frenetic energy to it, and a um, 
the sense that they can't stop dancing. Um, so it's sort of like a more of like a feverish joy. There's definitely like this angst about the fact that they're moving so quickly and they're not on stable ground. The way that you kind of sort of get like spring fever, you know, get that kind of <laughs> hot. <laughs> they're almost weightless. I mean, you can definitely tell that they're going clockwise. And it's beautiful. I mean, it sounds beautiful. Do you hear anything? Well, I, I hear harmony. Like I hear, I hear chords and, you know, really kind of angelic harmonies and I sort of hear like their movement. I think that the details almost don't matter. You know, it's for a few of the dancers, you can't tell where one arm begins and where another starts. And um, that doesn't matter, it's just the motion, it's the idea that this circle is never going to stop is kind of like it feels like they're always going to do this and the one on the bottom is always going to be reaching for her friend you know this is the lonely palette the podcast that returns art history to the masses, one painting at a time. I'm Tamara Vishine. Episode 34, Dance Dance Revolution. This is a story about a ballet, a painting, and an eight-year-old girl. I'll just come out and say that the eight-year-old girl was me. And you're about to hear the scariest thing that I, at eight years old, had ever heard. It's terrifying. This is The Rite of Spring, the modernist Russian composer Igor Stravinsky's epic ballet score, which debuted to rioting and acclaim at the Ballet Russe in Paris in 1913. And the reason I was listening to it when I was eight years old is not because my parents were trying to turn me into some kind of baby Einstein. It's because I first heard this ballet while watching half out of my mind with terror, animated dinosaurs kill each other in a Darwinian deathmatch that, in retrospect, was totally inappropriate for kids. I'm describing, of course, Disney's 1940 masterpiece Fantasia. And if you've never had the pleasure, and I do mean that seriously, Fantasia was only the third feature-length film that Disney ever made where animators were given free reign to animate famous works of classical music. Most people remember the whimsical hippos and tutus and Mickey losing control of the brooms with the buckets, but not me. The score to the Rite of Spring was animated to tell the narrative of the origin of life on the planet, from the Big Bang to the extinction of the dinosaurs. And all I remember was the fear. And the delicious exhilaration of the fear 
the risk that I would be taking by turning on the VCR in our basement alone, and then hiding the video under the couch cushions when I couldn't take it anymore. And it wasn't just the battling dinosaurs that freaked me out. And I needn't remind you that the early 90s wasn't a great time to be scared of dinosaurs. Thank you, Steven Spielberg. But dinosaurs are so obviously scary that at least I could cover my eyes. What truly hit my panic button was what came before. The passage of time. The awakening of life on Earth. Billions of years of evolution passing in seconds. How quickly time passed. How many times my own lifetime would have been reduced to a quick blink. It was purely inconceivable how insignificant I was compared to the lifetime of the planet. How indifferent the planet itself was to the life that it sustained. It awakened a primal existential anxiety that I, at eight years old, had never really stopped to think about before and that settled into my soul. It's not just knowing about the nuts and bolts of death, but about starting to slowly understand what that means. This concept of time existing without you. It's at once impossible and unbearable that time itself could be so indifferent. I mean, the Fantasia sequence ends with the dinosaurs going extinct, T-Rex included, in a death march under the blazing sun, with shifting tectonic plates swallowing their bones. And all of this, you have to realize, is set to this. A score of grunting, cacophonous, bitonal dissonance, like instruments smashed into a 10-car pileup. I mean, how could you not want to hide it all under the couch cushions? So you can understand why, when this all ended, and the threat of getting attacked by dinosaurs had been neutralized, you know, because they were all dead, thanks to nature, I was left more traumatized than ever. In some ways, it's actually a trauma that's intensified as I've gotten older. Which tells me, with small consolation, I guess, that at least I was scared all along of the right thing. So, if the Rite of Spring set out to scare the living daylights out of me, then mission accomplished. But its actual mission was a little more textured, even if the outcome was the same. Stravinsky wasn't involved in the Fantasia adaptation. He apparently wasn't a huge fan of it. And he did not set out to scare eight-year-olds with this ballet, at least not overtly. The music was actually conceived out of deep nostalgia for Stravinsky's own childhood in a small town in Russia. Even the origin of that eerie bassoon melody at the top is actually pretty benign, influenced by a Lithuanian folk song that Stravinsky had listened to as a child. The entire ballet, in fact, was meant to be a celebration of his homeland. The score was meant to evoke what he called quote-unquote pagan Russia, and the mystery and power of quote, the violent Russian spring that seemed to begin in an hour and was like the whole earth cracking, end quote. 
And as you dive deeper into Stravinsky's musical genius, you begin to realize that the story he wanted to tell doesn't need scary dinosaurs to be affecting. Instead, maybe he just wanted to take on what had existentially frightened him as a kid. There's a clear and deliberate element of violence and anxiety layered into these lurching symphonic textures. While the ballet has no real plot to speak of, it does still climax with a chosen maiden sacrificially dancing herself to death to ensure the propagation of springtime. I mean, that's where it gets its name. It's unsettling, but not in a T-Rex wringing the neck of a stegosaurus kind of way. Instead, it's an allegorical pagan surrender of the passage of seasons, honoring the extremes of the natural world, what we experience but can't understand. It accepts nature's power and indifference and nonetheless offers up its gratitude, its respect. It's meant to tap into something deeply rooted and, as I said, primal. This feeling of nature's power, this feeling of our own powerlessness, thrilling and terrifying all at once. It's an ode to the earth beneath our feet, to the eroticism that agitates our souls, to everything overwhelming that we can't control in our own human nature that is born from the natural world. And it's also exactly what European modernist painters at the end of the 19th and beginning of the early 20th century, painters exhausted with industrialization and yearning for this thrill, this romance of an ostensibly simpler time, painters like Henri Matisse wanted to capture. And this brings us to the root of this episode's investigation. We are all, of course, compelled to study what scares us, which means that when I decided I wanted to learn more about the Rite of Spring, I noticed that it was paired up with uncanny regularity to Matisse's masterpiece from 1910, The Dance. You've most likely seen this painting. It's an image of a pared down, spinning out, pulling apart ring around the rosy of bodies, heaving and stomping on a green hilltop against a blue horizon. And to be clear, there are two of these paintings, one that features considerably more unfinished dancers with pale pink skin, which is located at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and is actually a preliminary sketch for the final product, where the dancers have orange skin and more defined physiology. And this one is located at the Hermitage in St. Petersburg. The main difference between the two, according to Matisse, is energy. Once he finished the second, his critique of the first was that it was quote-unquote trance-like. And we'll return to why this matters so much, but first, let's get back to this whole pairing the painting with the ballet thing. It's not so hard to understand why people do this. I mean, take this written description of the ballet's original choreography. Quote, it's the sacred circle dance of renewal. The legs and feet held parallel, with knees slightly bent. The accompanying movement, a gentle, pulsing, sidestepping motion, found in many folk-style dances. A shunt-like skip. 
with one leg drawn up in parallel alignment in front of the body like a hook, with the knee and foot flexed, end quote. I mean, pull up an image of the dance and listen again to those words. It doesn't take a genius to want to pair them together. And I'll tell you, it's everywhere if you look for it. The internet is chock full of one colloquially illustrating the other. But of course, if you, like I, don't feel that that's rigorous enough evidence of anything meaningful, it's cool. I actually went to the music library at Tufts University to check out the full score just for fun. And I found on the cover, in full blazing technicolor, Matisse's undulating orange dancers. Clearly the universe is telling us something. But the purpose of this episode is not to determine with any degree of certainty if this painting is directly connected to the ballet, or if it's all just a coincidence. Because there isn't, and it isn't. A coincidence, that is. And I'll say at the outset that there is no concrete proof that the two were in any way created in tandem. Let's just disabuse ourselves of that right now. But that doesn't mean that they weren't created in parallel. By a French artist and a Russian ballet company, peeking over the fence at each other's styles and working in a specific period of the early 20th century that privileged our most primal instincts, that wanted to express the unbridled pagan dynamism of our innermost selves with emotional immediacy and succinct plastic technique. And this period was known as primitivism. So, okay, primitivism. We tackled this movement full on in episode nine when we looked at Kirchner and German expressionism. Primitivism obviously is an ugly word, not in the least because it largely means what you would think it would mean in today's terms. Westerners fetishizing non-Western art which of course encapsulates everything from African to Iberian to Oceanic, replete with the same kind of Eurocentric attitude, not unlike Cher in Clueless, confusing El Salvador and Mexico, yet getting offended if anyone thinks she lives below sunset. But it's worth, for a moment, taking off our post-colonial hats and considering why this art was so seductive to Westerners during this period of modernity and how genuine was their appreciation for art that seems so unlike their own. If you're living in industrialized Paris, you're stuck in a world of corsets, social mores, soot. Progress becomes synonymous with an overwhelming sense of speed and anxiety. So instead of being thrust forward, many modernist artists chose to retreat, to get back to basics, so to speak to return to a pre-industrialized, pre-Christian world full of decadent pagan sexuality and nude lumbering bodies, all of which is rendered in a deliberately naive style with thick, crude outlines evocative of woodcuts and blunt carved statues. We see examples of this primitivist style from the 1890s to the 1910s, from Paul Gauguin to the German Expressionists. But for our purposes, now, let's narrow our focus in on Matisse, Fauvism, and that time he went to Russia. To really understand Henri Matisse, 
you really need to understand fauvism, which means you really need to understand color. Color was the bread and butter knife and plate for the fauvists. They were defined by the impulsive brushwork borrowed from the Impressionists and the emotional, explosive, and primal use of color pioneered by the post-Impressionists. And though they only exhibited for a short time, around 1904 to 1908, their ability to bridge the expressive artists who had influenced them with the expressionism that they then influenced rippled across the rest of the century. It's not a far leap from Van Gogh to Fauvism to Expressionism. Here were a series of artists who painted as they felt, who didn't just observe a landscape or a figure, they experienced it. As we see with André Durain's Mountains at Collure, or Matisse's Woman with a Hat, both from 1905. We see bold, high-keyed, often discordant colors that were meant to grab your eyeballs and pull you into their imagined dreamscapes of colors and emotion. When asked what that woman in a hat, who happened to be Matisse's wife, was actually wearing, Matisse replied, black, of course. Even the name Fauvists is French for wild beasts, and it's easy to imagine the thrilling rush you'd experience if you were trapped in a pen with one of them. And Matisse in particular experimented with Fauvism as though attempting to capture a Garden of Eden before the fall, a world where human beings are unconstrained by corsets, by shame, by the chilly critical distance a society evokes by living in time, in history, in a world built upon the structures of its past and looking towards the progress promised by the future. All this rush-rush on that existential continuum, he seems to be saying dismissively. I mean, why can't we ever just be? Why not live in the now, experience the immediate calm of a world without memory or expectation, a world that is ahistorical, atemporal, where we can literally just lie around in primordial post-coital stasis? What would that world look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. Matisse's The Joy of Life from 1905 to 1906 which is far less frenetic than the other Fauvist works, but no less vivid. Here we see a world of lounging loafers in nature, of simplified forms, trees, and figures without any excess of detail to agitate the eye. And though no single facet of the painting is complete, bodies morph into bodies, trees become foliage, become sky, you never lose the overall wholeness that sensation of relaxed, languid calm. It takes more than a long weekend to achieve the feeling evoked by this painting, is what I'm saying. And if you look closely into the background, you'll see a circle of dancers, clear precursors to the dance, but lacking any of the energy that Matisse believed to make the latter painting worthwhile, the entire point of the exercise. Heck, comparatively, these Joy of Life dancers look almost like they're standing still. There's six of them, a nice, even number, perfectly balanced and harmonious. They add joy, maybe, but not any real sense of dynamic oomph. But back to the painting as a whole. 
This calm being in the moment is exactly what the quote-unquote primitive offered European painters. A validation that even though the West had lost the ability to tap into our primal needs, non-Western aesthetics gave them back the tools to achieve this sweet atemporal bliss promised to you when you live your life according only to instinct. But of course, there's a flip side to this. A life lived by instinct is inherently ruled by the amygdala, which controls our fight-or-flight responses, that shuddering shot of adrenaline that is the complete opposite of rational critical thought. As primitivism matured into its adolescence, it became more and more obvious that the natural inverse to primal happiness was primal fear that irrationality triggers panic, that sexual desire so quickly morphs into sexual anxiety. A key example of this turn from an aesthetic perspective is found in Picasso's iconic painting Demoiselle d'Avignon from 1907. Here, the immediacy turns from languid to brutal as these five prostitutes, some wearing African masks, stare you down with gazes sharp enough to draw blood. This painting has long been described as the precursor to cubism, but I would strongly argue that we're also looking at peak primitivism here, when that cute puppy that you always meant to train realizes that it indeed has fangs. Cubism is, at its core, an intellectual exercise, and this painting is not. This painting is devastating. It's a depiction of our worst sexual anxieties realized, an exercise in tension and tedium, in the transactional flatness of sexuality offered and eroticism denied. And you have to think that this turn that primitivism was taking strongly influenced Matisse when he painted the dance in 1910, just three years later. And first, a bit of background on this painting. In 1906, Matisse was first introduced to the Russian collector Serge Shukin, who would come to be one of his most important patrons. By 1913, he owned 36 of his paintings. In 1909, Shukin commissioned the dance for his home. And in the years that Matisse was cultivating this relationship, he spent a good chunk of time in Russia, positively delighted by the icons of Russian folk art that he was encountering. Russia was having a primitivist moment of its own, which we already know Stravinsky was experiencing as he nostalgically wrote the ballet score. Russian artists and collectors presented Matisse with these folk and outsider artworks during his visit. The painting, The Idols of Ancient Russia, from 1910, by Nicholas Rorick, who would later be the Rite of Spring set designer, articulates this Russian interest in their own past, how compelled Russian artists were to paint them. And there's Matisse, the enchanted recipient of this Russian aesthetic pride, apparently so exhilarated by their art that he couldn't even sleep at night. Quote, in these icons, he wrote, 
The souls of the artists who painted them opens out like a mystical flower. And from them, we ought to learn how to understand primitivist art. All French artists should come to learn in Russia." End quote. And in this post-demoiselle world, engaged in a rivalry of sorts with Picasso and following this passionate, authentic encounter with Russian icons that he believed to be the core of primitivism, Matisse tackled those dancers from the joy of life once again. But this time, they were different. Their circle is distorted. They're five odd figures instead of a nice even six. They strain their reach for one another. They're deliberately off kilter and unbalanced. They simultaneously cleave the earth with their stomps and levitate above it and embrace the crude, the unfinished in favor of a dynamic sense of primal wholeness. Which brings us back to the ballet, whose choreography, score, set design, and entire ethos I've basically just described. And I'll say it again. Matisse's dancers embrace the crude and the unfinished in favor of a dynamic sense of primal wholeness. And in the same way that Matisse and the Fauvists were tossing aside realistic human proportions in order to capture emotional expression and aesthetic wholeness, so too did Václav Nijinsky, the hotshot young choreographer of the Ballet Russe, the Russian ballet company based in Paris, and the original choreographer of the Rite of Spring. Nijinsky used the Rite of Spring to experiment with this primitivist aesthetic, to bring what was so hot from the visual world into the world of dance. And he realized his iconoclastic vision by tossing aside classical dance methodology in favor of sculptural blunt lines of movement that were modeled after the very same pagan statues that had so thrilled Matisse and his fellow Fauvists. And you have to realize, of course, that this ballet wasn't intended to be heard without also being seen. But in lieu of that, what you're listening to right now is the sound of Nijinsky's original choreography, which was painstakingly pieced together and revived by the Joffrey Ballet Company in 1987, and which you can watch in full on YouTube. There's a link on my website. And you can imagine, based on what you're hearing, what it looks like. These are not the delicate little pitter-patter raindrops of feet that we're used to hearing when we watch classical ballet. In fact, it's the complete opposite. The center of gravity has shifted from the fingers to the core. Every pose is fiercely struck. Everything is an attack. Arms that had always been gracefully extended forward are now twisted back. Like Picasso's prostitutes, these are dancers who could draw blood so quickly you didn't even notice. And visually, it's incredible to hold up images of these dancers side by side with, for example, the Fauvist André Durain's The Dance from 1905. This is where you can really see how influenced both of them were by Russian sculptures. Both of their figures are defined by sharp lines and precise attacks, 
holding a pose of eternal reverence or melancholy that is clear enough to be understood, shall we say, for the cheap seats in the back. After all, this is the purpose of religious iconography, to be legible. And Nijinsky basically turned his dancers into living, leaping icons. He freed them from classical ballet only to calcify their postures, which lurch from a restricted base and turn all the outward grace of traditional ballet inward. And those stomps. As you can hear, instead of the quote-unquote conquest of the air that had defined classical ballet, Nijinsky emphasized the other side of gravity. What goes up must come back down. His dance is characterized by these stomps, by vast explosive leaps and the subsequent contact with the stage. It was in fact these stomps that had particularly brutalized the audience in the infamous 1913 premiere of the ballet. One chief complaint was that the audience couldn't even hear the music over the pounding. And you can imagine how tough it must have been for his dancers. Their challenge wasn't just virtuosity so much as plain physical endurance. It was agony sustaining these postures. It was frustrating keeping count to Stravinsky's freaky time signatures. Their documented complaints of their headaches and bruised feet from the force of stomping and jumping without the added boost from a traditional plie. And you can only imagine how envious they must have been of Matisse's swirling figures. After all, Matisse's dancers didn't have to actually comply with the same laws of gravity that Nijinsky's dancers had to when they were asked to do the exact same thing. Because really, from an aesthetic perspective, it is the exact same thing. And not just because Nijinsky incorporated the same circular sidestep folk dance in honor of Russian primitivism in general, and Stravinsky's nostalgic childhood memories in particular. But because both the choreography and the painting are entirely comfortable using the human body for its primal energy, rather than its anatomical accuracy. To truly experience human nature, they both seem to be saying, means to flout the expectation that what you're seeing could ever actually exist in nature. And this is where I want to return to this idea of wholeness. To this idea that the whole equals more than the sum of its parts. This idea that both Matisse and Nijinsky referred to as plastic. In art, plasticity is the idea of getting rid of any erroneous detail, of paring down visuals to their most essential lines. This inevitably comes at the expense of all the detail that fleshes out an image. But, as Matisse famously said, quote, exactitude is not truth. My mom had this up in her studio when I was a kid. He's saying that what you may lose in accuracy, you gain in the depiction of a larger idea. When asked how a painting of his could be finished when he had only completed three of his figure's fingers, he replied, quote, I couldn't put in the other two without throwing out the whole of the drawing. It would destroy the composition and the unity of my ideal, end quote. Similarly, Nijinsky, heavily influenced by the barefoot instinctual movements of Isadora Duncan, experimented with what he called dance plastique, 
which was characterized by taut, minimal movements, again, nothing erroneous, that became, quote, a kinetic metaphor for primitive wholeness, according to the New Yorker dance critic Joan Acachella. Gone were the classical curlicues of traditional ballet in favor of the body's direct, intractable attack. And you can even see this aesthetic plasticity in the Rite of Spring sets, which, as I said earlier, were designed by Nicholas Rorick, who also happened to be the foremost expert in Russian folk art at the time. The sets bear an uncanny resemblance to the background of the dance. Both use the same planes, horizontal bands of ground and sky, bisected by hills composed of undulating line. Both are meant to recede behind the potent dynamism that they support. And both are powerful examples of the energy teeming beneath the surface of the earth. And this is when we think back to Stravinsky's description of a Russian spring that seemed to begin in an hour and was like the whole earth cracking. The cracking of the earth, the sense of roiling syncopated dynamism, the overwhelming presence of nature, its power, our powerlessness, that we are meant to hear in every note of Stravinsky's score. This music is haunting and it's savage and it's brutal and it's seductive. Melodies stay consonant just long enough for us to lower our defenses and then bam, we're obliterated by stomps, just when we're the most vulnerable to them. And yet, we continue to listen. We continue to be vulnerable. It's all we can really do. We're human beings squatting on an indifferent earth, living blinks of lifetimes. I mean, we don't have a choice. So we give ourselves over to it. All of us, Matisse, Stravinsky, me, you. I mean, it's better than just being scared all the time. We get so excited by the art of another culture that we can't sleep at night. We attempt to create something so new, it causes a riot. We bruise our dancers' feet in an attempt to articulate it. And when we can't take it anymore, we shove all the anxiety of the planet under a couch cushion, comforted by the assurance that at least we're all scared of the right thing.
This episode was originally given as a public talk at Harvard University's Sound Education Podcast Conference. And if you missed it this year, obviously I'll see you there next year. Special thanks to Zachary Davis, Judith Wexler, and the intrepid museum goers and songwriters at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. For more information, past episodes, all the images from this episode, and GIFs and video links of the ballet, go to thelonelypalette.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Lonely Palette, and on Instagram, at The Lonely Palette. You can like us on Facebook, leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts, and you can support us on Patreon. And it has never been a more exciting time to support the show on Patreon, because, drumroll, it's time for the second annual Lonely Palette Listener Patreon Challenge. If I get 25 Patreon patrons for any amount by December 31st, I will create a bonus episode on the ill-fated restoration of Eche Homo, the world's greatest droopy-faced fresco and my avatar on most things internet. It's a tall order, 25 is a lot, but look, we made Dogs Playing Poker happen last year. And I know that if you're listening to this, you appreciate how much work goes into making this show and how helpful even a buck or two per episode would be. Go to thelonelypalette.com forward slash 2018 listener challenge for more info. And thank you so much. The Lonely Palette is a proud founding member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of idea-driven podcasts. And we have some big and kind of sad news. We had our first Hub and Spoke graduation as Barry Lamb's Hi-Fi Nation was recently picked up by Slate, and we seriously couldn't be prouder or happier for him. But you've still got lots of other Hub and Spoke shows to choose from, and one in particular that might blow your socks off is the most recent episode of Ministry of Ideas, where Zach and company dive into the origins of modernity and the myth that we tell ourselves about religion and race. It's a brilliant episode, and I guarantee the only podcast you'll hear that talks about the trajectory from Plato to Playboy. Check them out at ministryofideas.org and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>